0: I got to tell you, Philippians chapter 1 verse, uh, chapter 3 verse 1 I think is one of my favorite verses as a pastor because Paul says halfway through the book, finally. Did you ever know pastors to do that? And finally, and then he goes on for another half hour, well there's the precedent right there, the apostle Paul, halfway through finally. And then he says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and a safeguard for you. Paul is saying that it's okay to repeat and to say it again and to restate it and to keep talking about it over and over and over again. And so pastors love this passage of scripture because we are inclined to be that way, aren't we? Say it again and then just in case they haven't heard it, say it again. And just in case they haven't heard it, say it one more time. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to take your attention to Philippians chapter three and we will read this really, really theologically rich passage of scripture. I'm not going to do it justice today, it's too much, but let's read it together and we will begin. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God or from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Paul begins his passage of scripture in verse one by saying two things. He says, first of all, brothers, rejoice. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's an imperative, it's a command. Then he says, to write the same things to you again is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. It's a safeguard for you. It's a protection for you. So he wants them to rejoice, to celebrate Jesus, to delight in everything Christ has done for them, to remember grace, remember Christ, remember the gospel. And then he says, I want you to think about it. I'm going to repeat it again. I'm going to tell you one more time. I'm going to keep on keeping on on this same theme because it's going to protect you. It's going to guard you. It keeps you safe. So why would he do this? What's, what's the, the reason for him repeating himself? The answer is that there were false teachers. False teachers who would follow Paul. Whenever Paul went and planted a church, these false te- when he left, these false teachers would come in and begin to teach a false gospel. They dogged the apostle Paul all through his ministry. A twisted, distorted gospel. And Paul is concerned that this twisted and distorted heresy will begin to affect the churches in Greece, in Macedonia. Today, we call these heretics, these false teachers, Judaizers. Back then, Paul very indelicately calls them dogs, evil workers, and those who mutilate the flesh. These men were Jewish pseudo believers, and their goal was to try to amalgamate Jewish Old Testament religion, Old Covenant religion, with Christianity. They wanted to create a synthesis between Old, Old Testament um, uh, faith and New Testament Christianity. So they taught that for a Gentile to be saved, they had first to be circumcised. The Gentile was to be saved. He had to believe in Jesus. He had to understand who Jesus was. But he had also, therefore, to be circumcised. And so their their equation for salvation very simply was this Jesus plus circumcision and obeying the Old Testament law equaled salvation. Jesus plus circumcision equaled salvation. In opposition to this, we know that the Apostle Paul taught something very different. He taught that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Judaizers rejoiced in Jesus plus their works. Paul rejoiced in Christ alone. And that's why he begins, Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord because Jesus is the Savior. The law doesn't save you. Circumcision doesn't save you. Obedience doesn't save you. Works don't save you. Being religious doesn't save you. Jesus is the savior and Jesus saves. And so he begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord. These men had caused great harm in the church. They had, Paul had gone to Galatia before this. They followed him into Galatia and they just spread this pernicious heresy everywhere Paul went in the Galatian churches and it forced Paul to write the book of Galatians and we'll refer to that book in a little while but now their perversion this heresy threatened to jump the Aegean Sea as Paul had crossed the Aegean Sea and gone into Macedonia present-day Greece Paul is concerned that these men are going to follow him into Macedonia into Thessalonica into Corinth and into Philadelphia He had caused great harm. And so Paul tells them to remember the Lord, rejoice in him, and begins to repeat for them again the gospel. He begins to talk about what Jesus has done. And he does this because the gospel of grace must be defended. The gospel that we believe, the gospel that is the foundation of our salvation, that Jesus is the Savior and that He saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Himself alone, must be defended. And the reason it must be defended is because the instinct, the human proclivity, the human instinct, the natural instinct is to believe the opposite. The natural human tendency is to believe that salvation is accomplished by Christ plus something. Christ plus something. It's endemic to our human nature. And so Paul reminds the, Galatia, the Philippians what is so great about grace? What is so great about the gospel of grace? I mean, he says a number of things. I hope to get through this passage. As I say, it's a very rich, it's a very deep passage, so I will try. But the first thing he says, by grace, we are the circumcision. See, the Judaizers believed that to be in covenantal relationship with the God of Israel, one had to become part of Israel, And to become part of Israel for 1,400 years, to become part of the covenant family of God, become part of Israel, one had to be circumcised. It was the mark of the covenant. So therefore, the Jews would refer to Gentiles as uncircumcised dogs. It was just a moniker that they gave the Gentiles who were not in covenant relationship with God. They referred to them as uncircumcised dogs. So over time, actually not over time, very quickly, the name from Israel also became the circumcision. So when you see the definite article there, it's really a capital. It's like when Paul says, we are the circumcision, he's talking about the name of Israel. He says, we are the covenant people of God. And he says, we are the circumcision Not because we have been circumcised. And not because we keep the Jewish Old Testament law. And not because of anything other than grace. We have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is them who are the dogs. Beware of the dogs. The one who call us the uncircumcised, although Paul was obviously circumcised being a Jew. But in in the Philippian context, in Philippi. He says, they call us uncircumcised dogs? Don't believe it. You guys are the circumcision. You guys have been born again by the Spirit of God. You have been transformed by the miraculous working, the miraculous power of the Spirit of God because of what Jesus did on the cross. You are in covenant relationship with God, and if anybody is a dog, it's them. They're the dogs, those who glory in the flesh. They're the dogs who mutilate the flesh. They're the evildoers who are preaching a false gospel. Now the important thing to know here is this, that these Judaizers were very, very, very close to Orthodox. They believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah the one promised all through the Old Testament. They believed that he died on the cross. They believed that he rose again from the dead. They would appear to be pretty orthodox with one exception. They didn't believe that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ alone. They believed that salvation was some sort of collaborative effort between God and themselves, that circumcision and law-keeping was critical in order to be accepted by God. And so when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, in Galatians, 2, 5, in Galatians 5, 2-4, he says this to the Galatian Christians in these various churches. He says, if you accept circumcision, or meaning if you believe in faith plus works, grace plus works, listen, then Christ is of no advantage or no benefit to you as a consequence of your theology, you are committed, you're obligated to obey the entire law perfectly. And if you receive circumcision, you're severed from Christ. Severed from Christ. Strong words. Paul was not saying to the Judaizers, nor was he saying to the people in Philippi, that God had somehow eradicated Israel, or that God had somehow stopped having a covenant people. What he is just simply saying is this, and what the New Testament attests to, is that by grace, Christ, in doing what he did, transformed Israel from what it was into something that God had always intended it to be, and that something included uncircumcised Gentiles like us from every tribe and tongue and people and nation in the globe. Think about the Old Testament just as an illustration of how this is seen in the New Testament. Think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament had a high priest. The Old Testament had a temple. The Old Testament had blood sacrifices. The Old Testament had a holy priesthood. The Old Testament had a mark, a covenant sign, which was circumcision. And you could go on and expand this out. Think about what Jesus has done. Think about what Christ has done in the gospel by grace. He is our high priest. We are together gathered here right now, his temple, Paul tells us. He is the final, perfect, ultimate sacrifice for sin. We have become by grace a holy priesthood offering up holy sacrifices to him. And circumcision now is not something that's reserved for one sex, but God does it to the heart of every single person and marks that person out when they become believer. He circumcises our hearts. You know, Paul says this, and you can go, I don't have time to explore it with you, but Paul says this in the end of Romans chapter two. He defines what a Jew is. It's not one who was circumcised in the flesh. It's one who was circumcised in the heart by the spirit of God by the working of grace. Another great example of this is in in 1 Peter 2, when when Peter gives the names that in the Old Testament referred to the people of God, the covenant people of God, and he tells the church, he says to the church, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation. A people for God's own possession. And in that same passage of Scripture, he gives the church the same mandate that he had given Old Testament Israel. He says, your job now as Christians, as new covenant believers, as the circumcision, as the new Israel of God, is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Israel is Israel is Israel. It always has been. But God in Christ took Israel and, and just sort of made it 2.0 he just he just morphed it he changed it he evolved it it's still Israel and we're still a covenant people of God and God still has a plan for that group of people who live in the middle east that we today call Israel Romans 11 talks about that but we are the covenant people of God by grace because of what Jesus has done for us I want to take you to one important passage, so if you flip back to, to Ephesians, about two pages in your Bible, to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul basically says this in the most obvious, and the most, obvious, in the most um, clear way possible. I want to read for you Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 and 3 and then verse 6. He says, Ephesians chapter 3, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. He's talking about a mystery that had been kept secret, but it was made known to Paul by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, it says this, The mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs and fellow members of the same body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, what God, you know, we don't think about this enough. God did, in Christ, did something absolutely mind-boggling. He took this group of people in the Middle East who had wandered so far from him that they couldn't even recognize the Son of God when God sent him. And by his death and resurrection, by his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus took this group of people and he morphed it. And he said, as he had said in the Old Testament he would, he morphed it into a situation in which we are welcomed by grace to become part of God's covenant family. In fellowship with God. That's why we can say Abraham is our father. That's why we can say I'm a Jew. Because Paul tells us that. More than that, because God has done it for us in Christ. And it's all by grace. Secondly, he says this. What's so amazing about grace? By grace, we put no confidence in the flesh. Look at verses 4 through 8 again with me. Though I myself have reason, listen, he says, he uses this phrase, by the way, confident in the flesh, three times. It's important. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more reasons for confidence in the flesh. I was, And then he goes on and he gives us seven things. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You can't get any more Hebrew than me, Paul says. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of church. I murdered Christians. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I was a rule keeper. I was a rule keeper. And then he goes on. Verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the passing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. By the way, that word rubbish there, really just literally translated means excrement. Excrement. So, With the exception of biblical Christianity, this is important to understand, with the exception of biblical Christianity, without, with the exception of Christianity that is grounded in the doctrines of grace, every religious formulation that ever has existed, exists today, or ever will exist in human history, every single one of them is rooted in the presupposition of fleshly confidence. It's instinctive, as I said, it's endemic to human nature. We are born with a belief that we can somehow climb the ladder and prove ourselves somehow before God. Every religion has a moral code, a formula by which its adherents are to be saved. And they confidently teach that if you keep their religious rules, if you follow their laws, do good by the power of the flesh... By the power of the will, you can earn your salvation. Every religion has that fundamentally at its core, except biblical Christianity. And first century Pharisaic Judaism was no exception. Saul of Tarsus believed this with all his heart. He was deeply committed to it. And he was a great example of fleshly confidence, confidence in the flesh, confidence that I can climb the ladder, confidence that I can do what's necessary, confidence that I can earn my salvation by following my religion. This seven example, this seven step example was Paul's laying out his Previous confidence, his piety, his devotion, his personal righteousness. And he begins with circumcision. I was circumcised the eighth day. And it's these things in which Paul had confidence. It's it's, it's these things that Paul was firmly counting on. So committed was he to these things that he was killing and arresting Christians who taught something else. And then on the Damascus Road, he met the Lord Jesus Christ, and his life was absolutely shattered. The underpinnings of every vestige of confidence that he had were completely stripped away. His worldview, his sense of integrity, his definition of self, his identity, everything was completely erased this The Damascus Road was literally an existential moment for the Apostle Paul. And it completely redefined him. Because in that moment, in the days that followed, he realized that every single thing that he had built his life upon, every single thing that he looked to define himself, every single thing in which he rooted his integrity, and every single thing in which he found his standing before God, his confidence before God, was nothing more than a pile of manure. And it shattered him. It completely shattered the man. Paul came quickly, and then over the next three years, slowly to really deeply understand that his salvation was by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And grace is amazing because it brings us to that point. It brings us to that point because I'll tell you, none of us would ever have come to see that were it not for the grace of God. It's interesting, and again, we don't have time, but Paul talks about his conversion experience in Timothy as an example for all who would believe. For all who would believe. And why is it so necessary? Why is it so necessary? Well, think with me with the story of the Philippian jailer. My guess is that the Philippian jailer, Acts 16, had probably heard the gospel. He had probably paid a little bit of attention to it, but not a whole lot. He throws, he whips Paul and, and Silvanus, Silas, beats them up, throws them in the stocks, throws them into the prison. And that night there's an earthquake. The prisoners are likely to escape. And he's in in a moment where he's pulling out his sword, ready to kill himself because he knows that these prisoners escaped. My life is forfeit. It's over. Paul tells him to stop. And at the end, you can read that yourself. At the end of that conversation, the Philippian jailer demonstrates what I'm talking about confidence in the flesh when he asks this so, so revealing question Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do I have to do? Is it circumcision? Is it charity, is it altruism? Is it a religious formulation that I need to line my life up with? What do I need to do to be saved? It is absolutely fundamental to who we are to think that way. What does Paul say? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Trust in the finished work of Christ fall back into his open arms, rest in him. Because it's not about doing, it's about simple faith, belief, trust. But that's not easy. As a matter of fact, it is impossible apart from grace. The impulse to put confidence in the flesh is strong, It has a stranglehold on all of us because pride is who we are fundamentally. Down at the deepest places in our soul, we are proud people. And that's why Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount. But it really begins his public ministry with these words. Do you remember what he said? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does poor in spirit mean? Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who understand what it means that they cannot contribute anything except the sin that makes their salvation necessary. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. How do you get spiritually bankrupt when fundamentally by nature you are proud and you are steeped in it and you can't see it? It's only grace. It is only the grace of God that brings a man or a woman to that place where they understand that our religion, our good works, our merit, our altruism, our charity, our kindness, our devotion to a particular religious formulation is nothing but a pile of manure. It is more than worthless, it's repellent. The realization that we need a Savior. Is something that is bestowed solely and uniquely by grace. So, the, fec- the second thing that makes grace great is that it humbles sinners. It brings a guy like the Apostle Paul, who was so filled with his pride and his religious standing, to a place of complete and utter brokenness before Christ, absolute helplessness, clinging fiercely to the only thing that he has his belief his understanding his trust that Jesus is the risen Messiah and that in his death and resurrection he is forgiven and that's what he begins to talk about now what's so amazing about the gospel of grace thirdly we have a righteous we have the righteousness of Christ so Paul goes on and he begins to talk about where his righteousness rests down in verse 9 And he talks about being found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. Not having a righteousness of my own. See that? That comes from the law. That comes from circumcision. That comes from obedience. That comes from altruism. But that which comes through faith in Christ... The righteousness that comes from God that depends solely on faith. Paul begins now to speak about an alien righteousness. A righteousness that is not his. A righteousness that he could never have attained. A righteousness that is so far beyond him that it was absolutely hopeless. The righteousness that comes through faith in Christ and is given to us by God. What Paul is doing in these next little, this little phrase here is reminding us about the gospel. Like he knows that the Philippians know. He knows in Philippi, he's preached this message dozens of times, he's visited there twice already. And while he was there, like in Corinth, he determined to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. All he did was preach the gospel, and he's doing it again because it is a safeguard for you. It's a safeguard to understand these things. So what is the truth he's talking about? He's referring to the transaction of the cross, obviously, right? When the sinless Son of God offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners... it's important that we just restate it as simply as we can. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ put us on his shoulders, Paul says in Romans 6, and he took us with him to the cross. And on the cross, our sin and our life of law-breaking rebellion and pride against God was imputed to Jesus. And the perfection of Jesus' law-abiding, holy, sinless life is imputed to us. That's the transaction of the cross. Don't know how I just say it any more simply than that. And then in the six most pivotal hours in all of human history, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, hung between earth and heaven and the Holy God of Israel vented his wrath for us on his son. And Jesus became vile and repugnant in that moment as he took our sin on himself and God cursed him. And he died in our place so that we might be justified. And people say justification is just as if I'd never sinned before. And that's, I guess, a a good definition of being justified. But it's so much more than that. What God has given you by grace is the holiness of a sinless life. He has taken the life of Christ who never sinned and he has attributed that perfection to your account, to my account. So when God sees me today, he doesn't just see me as having never sinned. He sees me as being a law keeper, as being someone who is perfect as Christ is the one who had never sinned, right, became sin on our behalf in order that we could become the righteousness of God in him. It's just that that the slate's not clean. That would be a wonderful thing, just as if I'd never sinned. The slate's clean. No. is that, plus all of Christ's righteousness, all of the beauty of his perfection, All of the loveliness of his character is now attributed to your account and you stand there before a holy God covered over in the righteous perfection of Jesus by grace. By grace you have been saved. And it's not of yourselves. How do you know that? Because you put confidence in the flesh. That's your natural instinct. That was Paul's natural instinct. That's everyone's natural instinct. That's why every religion on the planet says the same thing. You can do it. Just follow our religion. And the gospel of grace says you're hopeless. You don't have a hope. So fall into the arms of Jesus because there's no hope besides him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So do you understand why Jesus plus works is such an abomination? Can you see that? why Jesus plus circumcision would cause Paul to just write Galatians and read it like he is not gentle. Can you see why it's such a horrific presumption? To paint salvation as some sort of collaboration between a holy God and you. How can we add? How can we add anything to what Jesus has done? We can't. That's the point. If we're going to boast, we're going to boast in Christ, right? Boast in what Jesus has done. Rejoice in the Lord. Celebrate Christ. Fourthly, the thing that makes the gospel so great, verse, four, uh, verse uh, number four, is that we are now actively intimate with Jesus. I don't have to rush through this, but real quick. From verse 3, verse 4 through 9 is a a massive big parenthesis in Paul's thinking. So he's going along in his thinking. You can read. He's going along, gets to the end of verse 3, and and he takes a detour. And he goes along this detour for a while, but by verse 10, he's back on the highway again. So it's important to read 3 and 10 together to understand the flow. So let me read them for you together in succession. He says, verse 3, For we are the circumcision. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now he switches from the plural to the singular, but the the theme flows. That I, that we may know the power of His resurrection, that we may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. So what Paul does now or what he's doing here is he's showing seven qualities. He's already talked about seven characteristics of cipher cipher <laughs> <cypher-cious. laughs> Seven qualities of self-righteous pharisaism, right? He's given us that list and now he talks about seven things that mark people who are the circumcision. We glory in Christ Jesus. We worship in the spirit of God. We put no confidence in the flesh. We long to know him, to know the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, becoming conformed to a death like his. To know him there is to know that that's a verb. It's to long to get close to him. What is it it to be like in the new circumcision? What is it like to be a recipient of grace? What is it like to be born again? What is it like to be the new circumcision? Well, he tells us we worship in or by the spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. We repudiate self-confidence. Our only hope is in Christ. We long to know him. To get to know him better. To spend time with him. To know the power of the resurrection operative in my life. So that his victory is becoming my victory. To share in his sufferings. To pursue the same cause that he died for. His church and his kingdom, his name, and his glory. To be conformed to his death. To die as he did to sin daily. See, that's how we know. That's how we know we're in Christ. That's how we know that we've been born again. How do you know you're the true circumcision? How do you know you're in covenant relationship with God? The same way Paul knew that he was a Jew. There were characteristics, there were qualities, there were aspects of his life that were unmistakable. I was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, uh, the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I persecuted the church. As to the laws of Pharisees, as to the law, I was perfect, spot on. I could define myself. And all of a sudden he realized that was rubbish. It was garbage. Because when God saved him, certain things began to become obvious in his life. So I guess the question is, and the application in this message is simply this, are the qualities, the characteristics, the marks of a newly circumcised, a heart-circumcised new believer, new covenant believer, are they operative in your life? Are they? Do you worship in or by the Spirit of God? Do you glory in Christ Jesus like is he? Do you glory in him? Does he take your breath away? When you think about the gospel, when you think about seeing him someday? Have you genuinely repudiated confidence in the flesh? Do you honestly believe that your salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or do you still have this notion that it was a collaborative, cooperative effect, uh, uh, dynamic between you and God? Because it wasn't. Do you long to know him? Do you long to know him better? Do you long to get up in the morning and spend time in his word? To know him in the power of his resurrection, that life that came out of the grave that day has been changing lives for 2,000 years and will continue to change lives. Is he changing your life today? Do you know what it means to suffer for the cause? And are you like him? in his death, and that sin is being put to death daily in your life. You're wrestling with it. You'll never be perfect. He says that, and we'll talk about this next week. Not that I've already attained it, or I've become perfect, not even close, but I'm striving. Are you? Are you? Because if you are, I want to tell you this. You have been, you are a miracle. You are a miracle wrought by the Spirit of God because of the finished work of the second person of the Trinity, the Lamb of God. And his righteousness has been given to you by God, by God the Father. The terrifying thing is that the gospel is easily counterfeited. And I listened to an R.C. Sproul podcast from this morning as I was driving over here and he was warning his congregation about the fact that we can sit in church and not know Christ. It's a terrifying thing that the gospel of grace can become a religion. It happened in Galatia. Paul planted that church and it happened those churches, and it happened there. And in every congregation, there are people who say, "My parents were evangelical. I go to church. I believe Orthodox evangelical theology. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. I'm a good person. I'm a Christian. None of those things are bad. A ton of those things were good, but they don't save you. They don't save you. Jesus saves. Only Christ. So do you put confidence in the flesh in what you've done or what you're doing Or have you ever come to that place in your journey where you've simply closed your eyes, humbled yourself, and fallen into the arms of Jesus and trusted? And if you haven't, I beg you, trust the Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us, Jesus taught us, that there'll be people in the church who will hear all of this and still be outside the faith, still be tares, still be weeds in the church. Father, I pray that you'd be merciful today. If there's a man or a woman, a young person sitting here who doesn't know you, I pray that you would open their heart to understand the gospel the gospel of grace, which is amazing grace, and allow them to simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to quit trying, to quit striving, to quit doing, to quit working, and simply believe that Jesus did it all, all to him we owe. Grant that, I pray, for your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.